Amen, amen. Well, I hope you have your Bible with you today. And if you do, we're going to begin our series in 1 Timothy, uh, a series I'm very much looking forward to and a series that will take us into the new year. We're going to take a break over, uh, over December, but we're going to be in 1 Timothy for a while. And I really believe the Lord's going to bless us and teach us here. But before you turn to 1 Timothy, just by way of introduction to the series, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, but because before we can study any letter, which, by the way, is what 1 Timothy is, it's a letter. Before we can study a letter, we need to know who wrote it, we need to know who he wrote it to, and we need to know why he wrote it, all right, what was going on. So we want to survey the background, and first we want to ask who wrote it. Well, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul wrote this letter near the end of his life. Whenever we walk through one of the, the letters, uh, I like to turn to the book of Acts and show you kind of where in the storyline of the early church this letter was written. What was going on? Well, the challenge with 1 Timothy is that it doesn't actually fit within the storyline that we find in Acts. And most commentators suspect that this was written after what we find in Acts. So after Acts 28. If you remember, the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul in prison. And what we think happened, though we, we can't be exactly sure, but we think he was released from that imprisonment. And he went out and he, he met with a number of the churches that he had planted. And he went to Crete, for example, and encouraged the brothers and sisters there. And as he was out ministering, he wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, and the letter of Titus. Timothy was ministering in Ephesus. Titus was ministering in Crete. And so the Apostle Paul wanted to equip these young men for the ministry that they were doing there. And then we believe he was imprisoned again, at which point he wrote 2 Timothy, his last letter. And 2 Timothy was a heartfelt encouragement to to young Timothy, this young man that Paul loved. So Paul wrote it, end of his life, and that leads us to the second thing we need to know is, who did he write it to? Well, as you would guess, he wrote it to Timothy. Paul first met Timothy and invited Timothy into his ministry when When Timothy was a young man, which likely placed him in his early 20s. And then this letter was written likely about 10 years later. So if you can envision Timothy in your mind, the one who's receiving this letter, he's he's a young man in his early to mid-30s. And Timothy is in Ephesus. He's doing this ministry. Uh, Timothy's a really special guy. We know this because the Apostle Paul said so. He wrote to his, uh, in his letter to the Philippians, he wrote this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. It's a pretty high commendation, right? Paul says, I I can't come to you, but I'm hoping to send Timothy. Listen, I don't have anybody else like this guy. This is a special guy. Now for many of us, when we think of Timothy, if you've heard any sermons about Timothy or you've kind of put together an idea in your head, we think of a timid, shy, bashful young man who's always needing an encouragement from the Apostle Paul. But actually, if we read our New Testament closely, that's not the young man that we find. The Apostle Paul entrusted Timothy with some intimidating work. So if you remember when we preached through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and if you don't remember, that's okay, but many of you were here. You remember when Paul taught in in Thessalonica, what happened? Anybody remember? A mob came and they chased him out of the city. And so they chased him all the way down and he wound up in Berea. And so what did Paul do? Well, he just started teaching in Berea. And the same angry mob from Thessalonica found out he was doing the same thing in Berea. So they came down and chased him out again. And and what did Paul do? 
he turned to timid, bashful, shy Timothy, and he said, hey, Timothy, I'm, I have to flee, but you should stay. You should stay, Timothy, in Berea, in spite of the angry mob that's violently trying to, you should stick around, because this church needs somebody, right? So he gives them that assignment, and then he sends them to Corinth, and you remember the church in Corinth was like a tire fire, right? This was, it was, this was a disaster. Paul says, all right, hey, Timothy, uh, I have an assignment for you. I'm going to send you to Corinth. He's, he thinks very highly of this young man. So think what you will about Timothy, but he was no coward. He was no coward. And that brings him to the assignment that he's, he's operating in here when he receives this letter. T- Paul sent Timothy to minister to the church in Ephesus. So that's the why of the letter. And the church in Ephesus is so interesting. We could spend a whole sermon just talking about this church. And I know this because I thought about it. That was kind of my original thought for today. This church in Ephesus. Uh, truth be told, I see some parallels between this church in Ephesus and the church here at Redeemer, which I'll get to in a moment. But this church in Ephesus was, was quite unique. Um, you can hear about this in Acts 19. You can hear about Paul's time in Ephesus. Do you remember this is the one where God was doing such great work that there was a riot in the city because people weren't buying idols anymore? And so the idol makers said, we got to do something about this church. Like, this is a really special church. Paul ministered in Ephesus for three years, which is longer than he spent in, in like every other city. Paul was there. Think of the Apostle Paul was hands-on ministering, equipping, teaching the Bible in this church for three years. Outside of having the Lord Jesus Christ teaching, there's no better teacher in the history of the world that you could hope for. This church in Ephesus had a solid foundation laid. And so when we look at 1 Timothy and Titus, uh, one difference you want to keep in mind is that 1 Timothy was written to Ephesus, which was an established church, and Titus was written written to the church in Crete which was a church that was really just getting up and running. So Timothy is here in an established church that is beginning to face some struggles. And here's where I see the parallel for us and why the Lord, I think the Lord has led me to this text for us to sit in for a while. Sometimes we talk about ourselves here at Redeemer like we're a baby church, just getting off the ground church. And I think it's probably time for us to retire that language uh, because that's not who we are. We've been here for nine years now as of September. Nine years. We were planted by a church that's been around for more than 150 years. A solid foundation was laid. You know, the Pastor Paul and the elders at Cornerstone spared no expense in, in equipping us and enabling us and empowering us. Very much like the church in Ephesus, humanly speaking, we've, we've got every reason to thrive and succeed. But what we learn in this letter is that A few years of experience and a solid foundation do not guarantee faithfulness. So hear this. A church like ours can still go sideways in a hurry. Paul sent Timothy to a church like ours. He gave warnings and instructions to a church like ours. Laid out a blueprint for how to live faithfully as the household of God. How to build on the solid foundation. And he gave that blueprint to a church like ours. And so as we walk through the series, I want to invite you to ask some important questions. Why did things go sideways in this church? How can we guard against the same things happening here? What does it look like to build faithfully on a solid foundation? Where do we even begin? So we're going to jump into this letter, and I'm expecting the Lord to 
answer those questions for us and to press us further as we seek to grow on this solid foundation that's been laid. So with that context and those questions rolling around in our minds, I want to invite you to look with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 1 to 7. I realized I skipped something important which we're going to have to come back to, but we will. Marianne is now wondering, when will we? I don't know. We'll get there. 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses 1 to 7. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is where I'm going to have to go back and read what I I meant to read at the beginning. The Lord knows what he's doing, so let's come to this next. Flip back to Acts chapter 20. I had you turn there for a reason. We're going to read in Acts chapter 20, Beginning in verse 26, and what we find here is the Apostle Paul, he's passing back, after his time in Ephesus, he's passing back and he's close to Ephesus, and so he says, I want you to bring all of the elders from that church in Ephesus, bring them to me, I have a message for them, and here's the message that he gives to the elders in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 26, he says, therefore I testify to you this day, and so he's talking to the elders, that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul says, whatever goes off the rails in Ephesus, it won't be because of the teaching. Foundation laid. I taught you everything that there is to teach you. And he goes on to say, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And, listen close, and from among your own selves, elders in Ephesus, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul looking forward, prophesied that even though this church in Ephesus had, had a solid foundation, there were some issues on the horizon. So Paul called together the elders, the elders. And he said, listen, you've got everything you need now. You've, you've received the doctrine, you've received the teaching, but you need to know that wolves are going to come and you need to guard the flock because God bought that flock with his own blood, right? The blood of his son. You guard the flock, but listen, Some of the false teaching is going to stir up from among your own selves, elders. And it looks like that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. 
in light of what we just read, verses 1 to 7. He's, he's addressing false teaching that has arisen in the church, which we would assume some of that false teaching was even coming from the mouths of their own elders. And so a church with a solid foundation went off the rails. The question we're going to ask today of the text is this. How can the teaching ministry go off the rails? If that happened in Ephesus, just as Paul prophesied that it would, we want to ask the question, how, how does that happen and how can we guard against it here? So here's the first thing. The text teaches us that the teaching ministry can go off the rails when the teachers aren't tethered to the text. Look at verse 3. Again, now we're, we're back in 1 Timothy. Sorry for the jumping. Back in 1 Timothy, look again at verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he says, tell them to stop teaching things that aren't in the text, Timothy. Tell them to stop teaching things that aren't in what we have passed on to you. John Stott observes here, the plain implication is that a body of doctrine exists, which, having been revealed and given by God, is objectively true. It's the teaching of the apostles. Paul constantly calls Timothy and Titus back to it, together with the churches they oversee. Let me use a, a modern-day illustration, just to, maybe if I've lost you, let me rein you back in. Uh, I, I worked at Subway when I was younger, and if you've ever worked at Subway, has anybody else worked at Subway? Thank you, Krista. All right, Christy and Krista, and me. Well, when you work at Subway, you know that you don't get to just go willy-nilly with the formula for the sandwiches. You're a sub-artist, but not really. Um, not really. And at the back of the, the thing, they've got a sheet just reminding you how you make each sub. Because here's the thing. If a guy who loves Subway from Ottawa is buying his sub in Stainer, and he asks for the Subway melt, he expects four strips of ham and two strips of turkey and one thing of bacon on the sub. And you can't just throw tuna on there. You don't have liberty to do that, right? You, there is a recipe, and you follow the recipe. If he asks for tomatoes, he gets four tomatoes unless he asks for more. Because there's a recipe, and they take it very seriously. Because people will be upset if they come expecting one thing, and you deliver something else. Subway understands that matters. If that matters for your sub, how much more for the doctrine? The Apostle Paul says, tell them not to teach the different doctrine. I gave you the doctrine. I've passed it down to you. You've heard the recipe. I was there for three years mapping this out for you. You know the doctrine. The fact that Paul could even say the doctrine without explaining makes it clear that the church knew what the truth was. We find it in its earliest and most basic form in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul shares what, what we believe is the earliest recorded creed in the church. Here it is. Here's the heart of the heart of the doctrine. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Pause there. I delivered, like a waiter. I delivered to you what I received. I didn't manufacture it along the way. That's my job. I delivered to you what I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
This is the earliest creed, the heart of the heart of the doctrine. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. And he was buried, and he was raised. And he revealed himself to his apostles. And he revealed himself to 500 at one time. Many of them are still alive. Go ask them, he says. This is the heart of the heart of the doctrine. And we don't get to change the gospel. We don't graduate out of the gospel. We've been singing this same song for 2,000 years. And it's still the hope of the world. And yet these false teachers in Ephesus had grown bored of the gospel. And gave themselves permission to sing a different song. To be clear, they had no such permission. Neither do I, neither do you, neither did the Apostle Paul, to be frank. When he wrote to the church in Galatia, who was dealing with their own false gospel issue, here's what he wrote to them. He said, but even if we, so Paul said, even if I came to you again and I taught you a different gospel, don't listen. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, which is bold. Paul says, if an angel were to come down from heaven and to say, hey, actually, the gospel has changed, your job is to say, no, it has not. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Because we are not editors. We don't get to change the doctrine. We are not authors. We don't get to add, subtract from the doctrine. We are the stewards. We are the waiters bringing the food to the table. And a teaching ministry can and will go off the rails when teachers aren't tethered to the text. That's the first thing we learn here. Second, a teaching ministry goes off the rails when the teachers are attracted to everything new and novel. So we keep reading into verse 4. So he tells them not to teach something different, nor, he says, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. So pause there. We're going to talk about this later. We're not sure exactly what these false teachers believed. But he, he says they got a wrong understanding of the law. And here we learn they're doing some weird genealogy stuff and taking myths and stories. So you can imagine them reading Genesis and talking about the the secret line of so-and-so. and the, it, it's, just, it's all nonsense. He goes on to say in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It's all novelty and nonsense, he says. And here's the thing, novelty is like a, a huge magnet for pride. Do you agree? Imagine, you know, you know those big magnets like what you see on Bugs Bunny? It was novelty. It's the novelty magnet. As soon as you hold that out, all the pride that bubbles up in us just gets drawn towards this magnet. Why? Because we just love this idea. Each of us, there's something inside of us, loves the idea of being the smartest person in the room. There's something deep down inside of us that just loves this idea that I might be the one who sees what everyone else has missed. And so along comes that book in the Christian bookstore, and it says, how to really read your Bible. And people are like, all right. Or, or, or you know, the secret meaning of the text. And people, you know, and it happens nonstop, generation after generation, from the beginning, and it's going to keep going until Christ returns, unfortunately. 
Because there's always a market for it. Because we've got this pride in our hearts. And it's, it's the pride magnet. You can always sell those. And there's always going to be a market for the, the guy on YouTube in a dingy, dark basement. His mom's basement. Showing you all the stuff from the Bible that you, your pastor hasn't seen and your elders don't see. And you never saw. But look at this. And he holds up his decoder ring. and it, Always a market for it. Let me say this. And please hear this. Because this is a real warning for all of us, for myself. If you find your heart growing bored with that old, old gospel story, that's a problem. And the problem is not with that old, old gospel story. The problem is with your heart. One of the reasons why these things take root is that we do grow bored. Which is horrible to say, but it's true. And we just want a little something more. Right? And so instead of pressing deeper into the mystery of this glorious gospel, we start looking for something shiny and new, something that can be our pet hobby project, and it's dangerous for us. And let me just say, and, and I, now I'm speaking to the elders, or those who would be elders, woe to the church that sees its people doing that and ignores it and lets people follow a train of foolishness right into shipwreck for their faith. Too many churches turn a blind eye and they know that their people are feeding on these YouTube nonsense and reading these books and they don't want to talk about it. Woe to the church that lets its people go down trails of nonsense. Part of leadership means standing up and saying, no, (laughs) stop. But, and here's the warning we really find in the text, double woe, triple woe to the church who appoints those levels of novelty and nonsense as their elders. That's a surefire recipe for disaster. It's a blueprint for ruin. There's teachers in Ephesus here who are obviously attracted to the new and the novel and the myths and the nonsense. And we don't even know what it was that they believed because as Paul addresses it, he he doesn't really put together a coherent argument because it doesn't look like they had a coherent belief. Uh, So one commentator, for example, notes, Paul must deal with the Ephesian opponents differently from those in, say, Galatia who had a formulated teaching that could be described and evaluated. Paul cannot logically and theologically argue against empty chatter and quarrels about words. It's just empty chatter. It's just nonsense. It's speculations and myths. And How do you even formulate an argument? It's just, Paul just says, stop. Look at the fruit of your lives. This isn't working. Stop. When you walk away from corporate worship, friends, When you walk away from the gathering of God's people and the word has been preached, you should walk away with a clearer view of God. You should walk away with a clearer understanding of his word. You should walk away with a clearer view of who we are and how we need a savior. And you should walk away with a clearer view of what God has done in Christ to secure our salvation. And you should settle for nothing less. Settle for nothing less. And these poor people in Ephesus... We're gathering, after three years of sitting under the Apostle Paul's teaching, our gathering, our coming to these teachers, saying, we need, feed us, right? Life is hard. There was a riot over here because they, were, they weren't selling idols anymore and people are angry at us. So we need to hear from God. And instead, they were hearing empty chatter and nonsense and myths and speculations and teachers waxing eloquent about things that don't point them to the true hope of the gospel. And it's a mess, If you want your teaching ministry to go off the rails, it's going to happen when the teachers are infatuated with new and novel. But third and finally, the teaching ministry goes off the rails 
when the teachers aim at anything other than love. This is so critical. It's right in the text. Look with me at verses 5 to 6. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. The aim of our charge as stewards of the gospel is love. The proper proclamation of the word of God should push people towards a greater love for God and a greater love for one another. And once, once love is taken out of the front, once you start aiming for something other than love, you've lost the plot entirely and you're on the road to ruin. And we know this because this happened elsewhere in the New Testament. Who, who can tell me? Where else did it happen? Can you think of an example? Corinth. You got the manuscript, but I bet you would have got it right anyways. You know, Sarah read for, from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, the love chapter. Do you remember, why did he have to write the love chapter? Because the church in Corinth had become so fixated with and enamored by the spiritual gifts that they were starting to, to direct their heart and their attention on these spiritual gifts. And Paul tells them, he says, the spiritual gifts are great. And he explains, you know, how, here's how they ought to work. But, but he corrects them because he says, listen, they're great, but they're not the focus. Here's the focus. He says in 1 Corinthians, sorry, 13, not 15. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see what he's saying there? He's listed off some pretty special things. Can you imagine if you had faith to move a mountain? And can you imagine if you were so generous that you were willing to die burning at the stake? He says, but if, if, if you don't have love right there at the center, then it actually isn't anything at all. If your doctrine leads to pride, if your Bible study produces boasting, if your church has any ambition that has supplanted the chief aim of loving God and loving one another, then you have missed it. Why did they go off the rails? Because they'd swerved away from, de-emphasized the need for a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. As a result, the doctrine that they teach was no longer one that led to love. They were meant to minister from pure hearts. But as he'll go on to explain in chapter 4, they had become liars. They were meant to lead with a good conscience. But as we will learn in chapter 5, they were persisting in sin. They were meant to preach with a sincere heart. But as we will learn in chapter 6, some of the elders actually had depraved minds and had developed an unhealthy craving for fighting and controversy. And the sad thing is that even after Timothy had shared this letter from the Apostle Paul and he had worked and ministered with the church in Ephesus and reminded them and taught them and rebuked them and instructed them, even after all of that time, they still missed the mark ultimately. Did you know that? So we know this is true because somebody else wrote the church in Ephesus a letter. I'll, th I'll throw this one out again. Who else wrote the church in Ephesus a letter? Jesus. Yeah, that's always the right answer. The kids would have got it. Jesus. Revelation chapter 2. You remember that? 
Jesus writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he commends them for some things first. And it's, you know, one of the things he commends them for is that they are zealous for the truth. They don't tolerate false teaching. So what do we learn from that? They learn part of this lesson, right? They kicked the false teachers out and they didn't give an inch anymore. We're not going to tolerate false teaching here in Ephesus. Oh no, we've learned our lesson. But there was a secondary lesson that they missed. Jesus said to them, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You chased out all the heretics, but you never got back to the center. The aim of our charge is love. From the overflow of my heart, I speak. From the overflow of Gary's heart, he speaks. From the overflow of Harry's heart, he speaks. And Clyde's heart, he speaks. And Keith's heart, he speaks. Pray for your leadership. Pray for your elders. Pray for your teachers. Pray for them that they'd be motivated by love. That they'd have a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. How does a teaching ministry go off the rails? Well, it goes off the rails when the teachers aren't tethered to the text, when they're attracted to everything new and novel, and when they aim at anything other than love. That's what we see here in this text. And in light of that, I want to conclude with three proposed resolutions for us as a church. I want to put forward three resolutions. Here's the first one I would propose. Resolved. We will be careful and prayerful in our appointment of elders. See, the Bible provides clear qualifications for elders. And a church ignores those qualifications to their ruin. We're going to get into those later. and we're not going to get into them today. But for now, here's an application for us that we can all go away with. In a little less than a year, our brother Clyde is going to be returning to Cornerstone. Uh, He was sent to help launch us for year one. And he has done an over and above job. And we've been so blessed to have him with us. But he's going back. And we're going to have to fill that role. We're going to need to find another qualified elder to step into that role. And I'll tell you, we're going to make some decisions this year. We're going to make lots of decisions this year, but we will not make any decisions more important than that one. Finding the leader to step into that place. In in terms of the long-term health of this church, we won't make any decisions more important than that one. So can I invite you to be praying now? We need to be praying as a people that God would raise up a man to step into that place. Start praying now that God would guard us against anyone who would teach a different doctrine. That God would guard us against anyone who would be infatuated with novelty or anyone who would try to lead this church with an aim towards anything other than love. Because as the leaders go, so goes the church. Be careful and prayerful in our appointment of elders. That's what I would propose. That's the first resolution. Second is this. Resolved. We will cultivate a culture of accountability. Now, there are biblical and unbiblical ways to hold leaders accountable. And we're going to unpack that later as well. But for now, hear this reminder. I want you to hear this. The title of elder and pastor and overseer does not mean infallible, unquestionable, or above the law. We as elders know that. You need to hear that. And uh, I can remember two occasions in this church when, thankfully, I had people from the congregation pull me aside after a service or later in the week and challenge me on something I had said. And they did it faithfully and humbly with a Bible in hand. And they said, you know, you said this, but I don't see this. And I confess, in my flesh, in the moment, I didn't love it in the moment. But I love it now. I look back and I'm so thankful for brothers and sisters who understand 
And I hear, because understand, I'm not the Pope. I know that. It, it is imperative that you know that. I don't claim to have the infallible understanding of the Bible. I'm just doing my best. I'm doing my very, very best. But if you see that, I, I think he's maybe missed it. Please, the door is open. Please come and tell me. And if, and if I don't listen, because maybe, maybe you come and tell me, and I just say, get out of here. Well, I would hope not, but sometimes I don't sleep enough, and it's possible. Then you, the doors are open. You, you go and talk to the elders, truly. You tell them. Did you know that the, doc, the elders, it's their primary responsibility to guard the doctrine that is proclaimed here in the church. That's their primary responsibility. Did you know that? And so from time to time, if I'm about to preach something and I say, boy, I... I think I've got this right, but I want to make sure. I'll talk to the elders. If there's a week where I'm like, I feel led to talk about this, but boy, this is tricky. I will meet with the elders and say, here's where I, I feel led. What do we think? That, those meetings happen. And if I say something that, that's a little sideways, the elders will pull us, me aside and they will tell me. And if I keep going sideways and I stray from the center, they will remove me. That is baked into the cake of this congregation. And we need it. It's a non-negotiable moving forward. But it applies to more than the teaching. The character of our leaders and teachers must also be above reproach. We must resolve as a church to deal honestly and openly with sin as we see it. From the top down. Now we're going to discuss this in greater detail in the coming weeks. But let's resolve today to never, ever, ever conceal things that need to be brought to the light. We've seen how this story ends. The church has a miserable history of, of hiding things, sweeping them under the rug to try and protect its own. Let's resolve to never let that happen here. Let's be the people who have the hard talks. Let's cultivate a culture of accountability. Third and finally, resolved. We will tether ourselves to the word of God. Because you see, the first two resolutions are impossible unless we adopt the third. How are you going to appoint biblically qualified elders if you never open your Bible to see the qualifications? And how are you going to hold people accountable in their teaching and in their character if you never open the Bible to see what right teaching and right character ought to look like? Answer, you can't. We need to be a people who open the book. We need to read our Bible to identify sinful attitudes and actions that have crept into the church. Read our Bible to see the qualifications. You need to read your Bible. If this church is going to shine like a city on a hill, if it's going to thrive as the household of God, then this church must be filled with men and women and boys and girls who look to the word of God as their final authority for truth. It must be filled with people who refuse to settle for anything less than the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. We must resolve to to fill the pulpit with men who can declare with the Apostle Paul, therefore I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We must settle for nothing less from the pulpit. But here's the piece we sometimes miss. We must settle for nothing less in the home. Honor your elders, yes, but don't make idols of them. The elders are to lead and to correct and to equip, but they're not to do your Bible reading for you. You should listen to us in the same way that the Bereans listened to Paul. In Acts 17, he says, the Berean Jews were very glad to receive Paul's message. And they studied the scriptures carefully every day. They wanted to see if what Paul said was true. Let us resolve today to be men and women of the word. 
Listen, we're heading into our 10th year of ministry here at Redeemer, which is weird to me because that means I'm 10 years older. And that can't be right. But we, here we are. And a lot could have gone wrong in 10 years. You know, it's remarkable that we've come to this place. Imagine if a global pandemic would have hit. Like, what could have happened here? And yeah, that was a joke. Um, a lot could have gone wrong, but by the grace of God, here we are, worshiping together. And by the grace of God, we're, we're celebrating as little, little babies are joining into the nursery, and it's bursting to capacity, and we're seeing people from the community joining in, and we're seeing God do amazing things in our midst. Praise God. It's, it's all of him. We're so thankful. But here, here's what I want you to hear, and what I think our text today would have us hear. Let's not become complacent or arrogant or assume that that future faithfulness is guaranteed. It's not. We must resolve day by day to attend to the means of grace. And one of the primary means and, and what we see they lost sight of in Ephesus and what we must never lose sight of is we need a faithful teaching of the word. We must guard it. May God raise up godly men to continue to lead this congregation until his return. May he guard us against corruption, grow us in integrity and holiness from the leadership all the way down to the nursery, and and let's hold each other accountable. May he cultivate in us an unflinching, unflinching commitment to the authority of his word. To that end, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to begin by acknowledging with your people that this is your church. This is your church purchased at great price. I look out this morning and I see men and women, boys and girls, who were purchased by the blood of your son. And they're yours. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege that that I have, that we as, as the elders and overseers here have of equipping your saints for the work of ministry. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful in our, in our task. Lord, and we acknowledge that we're not, we're not anything special. We're just men that have been called to a task. We're stewards, stewards of, of your truth. And Lord, help us to be faithful. Uh, Lord, help us to see that there is great cost. Lord, so many times we are tempted to underemphasize how important this is. And yet even this past year, we've watched churches go off the rails because they weren't tethered to the truth of your word. Uh, And Lord, the culture is shifting and changing day by day. Our feet need to be set firmly on the rock. So Lord, help us to see how important it is. Lord, help us also not to overemphasize leaders and teachers. Help us not to make idols of, of those who are in positions of leadership. We're under shepherds. That's our task. We ourselves are sheep. And Lord, we want to see that, and we want to live accordingly. Uh, We want to be approachable and teachable and humble. Uh, So Lord, in all of these things, we need your help, because there are so many horrible examples of leadership around us in the world. Uh, Where do we learn what leadership looks like? We look to you, and we look to your word. We follow the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. God, would you guard your church? Um, Not because we want to build something exciting here, but because we want to see your kingdom advance in this city and in the world. God, we want to see your name proclaimed and and glory resounding and praises springing up across this city. And Lord, we don't want anything here, whether it be waywardness in our character or foolishness in our doctrine or an obsession with novelty. We don't want anything here to be distracting the world from the glory that you deserve. God, so would you use us and would you take us 
and uh, let our lives be consecrated for you. So Lord, we ask all these things in faith, in confidence, that as we look to you and as we hold to your word, your spirit will continue to guide us into the truth. We believe that. And so Lord, help us to rest in that and to press forward in that. We ask in Jesus' mighty saving name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us? Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?